Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Great to have you here. Welcome. My name is Peter Trivowitz. I teach in the International Relations Department and direct the uh, Fallon U.S. Center here at uh, LSE that is hosting um, tonight's lecture. Tonight's event is part of the U.S. Center's uh, Wanger Distinguished Lecture Series, which aims to promote greater understanding of America's role in the world economy uh, through the analysis of international trade, law, and institutions. It's made possible by the generosity of the Henry and Consuela Wanger Foundation. So we meet at a time when attitudes and policies towards globalization are in flux, domestic pressures to deglobalize, decouple, reshore are mounting, and those pressures are now being fueled by geopolitical developments from the war in Ukraine to the rivalry between the United States and China. And we wanted to take stock of this moment of globalization, where we are and perhaps where we're headed. And we invited uh, Professor Penny Goldberg, leading voice on trade and development issues, to give this year's lecture. Professor Goldberg is the uh, Elihu Professor of Economics and Global Affairs at Yale, where she holds a joint appointment in the Department of Economics and uh, the Jackson School of Global Affairs. Former chief economist of the World Bank Group, she served as president of the uh, Econometric Society, vice president of the American Economic Association, and editor-in-chief of the American Economic Review. Uh, among her many honors and awards, Penny is a recipient of a Guggenheim and Sloan Research Fellowships and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As I mentioned, she's published widely on trade and development, and as luck would have it, when I invited her, I found out that she has a book coming out on today's topic with MIT Press that is coming out sometime this summer pending supply chain issues, the unequal effects of globalization. A few words just about kind of housekeeping notes about format tonight. So following Penny's lecture, we're going to open things up and give you a chance to put questions to her. For those of you joining online, all you need to do is submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Please include your name and affiliation and we'll work in, we'll feather in questions, online questions, over the course of the evening. Uh, for those of you in the theater, all you need to do is just put up your hand and wait for one of the ushers to come to you. I think maybe lastly, for those of you in the theater, if you haven't already, please put your phone on silent so that it doesn't disrupt the event. And I guess with that, please join me in giving Penny Goldberg a warm LSE welcome. Thank you very much, Peter, for this very generous introduction and also for the opportunity to talk here. It's a topic that's dear to my heart, but it's also a topic that I think is becoming increasingly important, I would say, these days in economics and politics. Needless to say, it's a vast topic, and I only have 
I negotiated with Peter for 40 <laughs> minutes to talk, so I'll jump right in. I have quite a few slides. I won't be able to go through all the slides in great detail, but they will be posted anyway. And I hope we can discuss some of these issues I'm going to bring up in greater depth during our conversations afterwards. So let me start with a roadmap. Here are the basic themes I want to cover in this talk. I want to start with a question, is the, the global economy deglobalizing? And let me just briefly say, when Peter initially invited me to give this talk, my answer was going to be just the, the first line. In the data, we see no evidence of deglobalization. There is a slowdown, but not necessarily deglobalization. In the meantime, in, during the past year, I have revised this view, and I will explain why. The main reason is that the policy environment and the public sentiment have dramatically changed. So I think it's fair to talk about a new era. I will spend most of my time in this talk talking about the causes of this retreat. And I want to touch on four different themes here. I will mention them very briefly at the outset. The first one is the perception that uh, trade and competition be between countries has not been fair. And here, what most policymakers and commentators think or are thinking of is the competition between the US and China. Second, I want to talk about the increase of within countries inequality and the role that globalization has played uh, in this process. Third, the role of the pandemic of COVID-19 in feeding this sentiment against trade by bringing to the foreground arguments about the resilience of global supply chains. And then finally, I want to talk about what happened last year with the invasion of Ukraine that changed the conversation from pure economics to geopolitics. And then in the end, time permitting, I'm going to talk briefly about the consequences of these new developments. Uh, needless to say, this is highly speculative, given that all this is still unfolding. So we are living in a shifting landscape right now. So let me start with my first question. Are we experiencing deglobalization? So first, this is a pretty old question. Economists have started asking this question after the financial crisis, pointing out that during the financial crisis, trade collapsed. After the financial crisis, trade grew again, but at a lower pace. And you can see that clearly in this graph. You can see around 2009, you, you see a dip in the graph that shows the decline in trade during the financial crisis. But you can see that afterwards, by 2010, 2011, trade has grown back to its old level. The lower line, the dark blue line, shows the value of trade in real terms in 2018 US dollars. The top line shows trade as percent of GDP. And you will notice that in the, when you look at the top line, there is this dip in 2009. After that, trade grows back to the previous level, but then it remains steady after that. And so it's this trend that caused people to start talking about deglobalization. So the fact that after the financial crisis, trade has been growing more slowly than in the past. You'll also notice that at the very end, so in year 2020, you see another sharp decline. This is the COVID-19 crisis. So that's in 2020 when trade again collapses. But just like after the financial crisis, after 2020 and 2021, we see a rebound of trade. So trade in that year grows faster than any time before. 
so this is why I'm saying in the data we don't see any strong evidence of deglobalization. Now, you can qualify this statement in many different ways. You can look by uh, country groups. You can produce this graph for uh, various countries. Um, if you do that, then you will find out that these global trends are primarily driven by China and India. These are two countries that embraced trade very strongly in previous decades. But in the last decade, um, they started distancing themselves from trade, so especially China that has been pursuing a policy of dual circulation, so in, among other things, increasing the domestic value in China. So this trend in China is also uh, had implications for the global trend. But the bottom line is that any, any way you put it, you don't see any retreat from glo globalization. You can also look at other metrics like uh, migration flows, capital flows, uh, et cetera. And again, uh, you see the same picture. There is a slowdown, but not necessarily deglobalization. On the other hand, when it comes to policy and public sentiment, then we see profound changes in the last few years. Um, we see a reversal of decades old liberalization agendas pursued by two countries that have traditionally been champions of uh, liberal trade, of open trade, the US and the UK. So a few landmarks, um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with them. The Brexit vote in 2016, followed by the US tariffs that escalated in, into a full tariff war between US and China. The tariffs remain in place as of today. There was in the W in the World Trade Organization the appellate body crisis that rendered the World Trade Organization defunct. Uh, this crisis culminated in 2019, but the problems had been evident much earlier. And the US has been complaining about the WTO for many years. Uh, more recently, the US has been pursuing a set of subsidies that have been characterized as uh, a new assertive industrial policy. Uh, the CHIPS Act, the provisions in the CHIPS Act and in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, give many examples of such policies. And finally, as of last fall, we have the export restrictions targeting China and specifically the semiconductor uh, sector in China. These are by far the most drastic policy measures that the US has taken so far. Uh, perhaps we can talk later in more detail about what exactly these export restrictions involve. Uh, but essentially, um, many have characterized them as a declaration of an economic war against China. At the same time, in other parts of the world, we still see regional and multilateral agreements. Um, you can see all the acronyms there, ASEAN, RCEP, CPTPP, and uh, the African Free Trade Agreement, and so on. So the rest of the world is not deglobalizing or it's not expressing any desire to retreat from globalization. However, we do see the, the largest economies of the world. At this point, the US, the UK, and of course, China uh, taking active steps to decouple from each other. What about public sentiment? So as late as 2018 and 2019, so this is despite the trade tensions between the US and China, the public still viewed trade as beneficial to the world economy. And this is despite many concerns in many countries about employment and wages. And the best evidence to that effect comes from the PW Global Attitude Survey, 
Um, if you want to read more about this evidence, you can read the associated chapter by uh, Dorn and uh, Level in the Deaton Review. So the Deaton Review is a project that aims to understand inequality, the various aspects of inequality, uh, mostly in advanced economies. And one of the chapters is dedicated to globalization. So in this chapter, Dorn and um, Lavelle cite evidence from these global surveys. And it's very clear that the public still supports trade. However, as of 2022, we see a new vocabulary emerging in social media, in newspapers, in many articles. Uh, we see terms such as resilience, geopolitics, of course, reshoring, friendshoring, national security, China plus one, these terms become standard. And so this is the first sign that something is changing. Perhaps the most telling sign comes from some polls that the Booth School at the University of Chicago conducts on a bi-weekly basis. So the Booth School polls many economists on many issues of economic interest. And the purpose is to see where economists agree and where there is disagreement. And as you can imagine, on most issues, there is some form of disagreement. But occasionally, everyone among those asked agrees on the answer. And one striking poll was conducted in March 2018, so just after the first set of tariffs in the US was announced. And the respondents were asked whether the US tariffs were going to increase welfare, if they were the right path towards increasing welfare, 100% of the respondents were against the Trump tariffs. And actually, if you, I won't click here, but if you click at the responses, 75%, I think, disagreed with the statement that tariff increases would be welfare enhancing, and the other 25% strongly disagreed with the statement. In 2022, in January, uh, Booth conducted another poll, and this time they were asking the respondents, they were asking the economists about global supply chains. And then the question was whether sourcing inputs uh, from other countries had made supply chains in the US too vulnerable. And 76% of the respondents expressed skepticism towards trade. In a slightly different context here, it's not about tariffs, it's about global supply chains. Nevertheless, the response indicated that economists at that point were much more skeptical towards trade. And that shows the change in the sentiment, even among people, economists, who traditionally have been very strongly in favor of free trade. So overall, I would chart three phases in this deglobalization movement. And in the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk in detail about each of them. So the phase one is approximately between years 2016 and 2020. And the main drivers, uh, my thesis is going to be that the main drivers behind the uh, origins of the deglobalization sentiment during that period is the, uh, the sentiment that competition between countries had become unfair, competition between, especially between China and the rest of the world had become unfair. More important than uh, this notion was the sentiment that trade with low-wage countries was hurting workers in advanced countries. So uh, the trade with other countries, and especially China, was causing labor market disruption that contributed to inequality. And during that time, regional inequality, spatial inequality, emerges as a major theme, as a major driver of inequality 
globalization, as I will show in a moment, is contributing to this increase in regional inequality. The consequences of this phase, very briefly, were in the UK, Brexit, um, in the US, the Trump tariffs, um, and the escalation of the trade tension with China. But overall, despite all this, trade remained robust. So I will talk again about this in more detail in the following minutes. But despite all these tensions, trade kept growing during that time. And I will make the point that trade was merely reallocated during that time from, from the US and China towards other countries. Then in phase two, uh, Phase two is approximately between years 2020 and 2022. So this is, these are the COVID years. This is when the pandemic plays out. And during that time, a new concern emerges. The concern is about the supply, uh, supply chain resilience. So it's no longer about labor market disruptions. It's about supply chains, global supply chains. The consequences during that time, despite all the, the rhetoric and, the, and what we read in the public press, there were actually no real consequences. Trade, as I showed you before, declined in 2020, but by 2021, trade was growing faster than ever before. Phase three starts uh, with the invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 until now. This is the year, in my view, that, that is a game changer for this debate. Uh, we have new concerns emerging, concerns about national security, Again, the concern about the resilience of global supply chains, but it's a different kind of resilience. So it's no longer resilience to shocks, to any shocks, to health shocks. It's about resilience to geopolitical risks. Um, as I said, the catalyst was the invasion of Ukraine. The consequences are quite severe when it comes to deglobalization. We may not see it, see it in data yet. It's too early to see it in the data. But we are in the process of decoupling from two of the largest uh, suppliers of goods to the advanced world. So we have in Europe decoupling from Russia. Russia is not a major exporter, except it provides energy to Europe. So it's important in that context. But perhaps more importantly, in the US, we have a process of decoupling from China, which, if you ask me or most trade economists, would have considered unthinkable even in the year 2018, as the US were, was imposing tariffs on China. So it's not clear what is going to happen to trade in the future. That's why you see the question marks there. More importantly, it's not clear what, how economic relations, not to mention political relations, between countries are going to evolve in this new era. So this is roughly what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this um, hour. And I will try to go a little bit deeper on this, of this issue. So let's start with phase one. Unfortunately, the top is covered. So it says phase one. So in phase one, um, I talk extensively about the drivers of phase one in the book that Peter mentioned. So let me engage in a little bit of self-promotion here. The, the book is called The Unequal Effects of Globalization. And it's a, it's a monograph that refers to the time up to the COVID pandemic. The advantage of that focus is we know a lot about that period because we have a lot of data. Uh, what has happened after COVID is still too recent, and it has not been analyzed in great depth yet, but I will talk about this later today. Uh, and the main uh, issues there, the main drivers of, of this uh, anti-globalization sentiment during this phase one are the perception that China has been playing unfairly, but also the decline, the, the, but also the, the view that the decline in global inequality, so the inequality across countries, has come at the expense of the increase of within-country 
inequality. And the first person who made this point uh, quite forcefully is Branko Milanovic in his 2016 book, Global Inequality. And, and he was the very first one, he was not the very first one to point out that there was this decrease in global inequality, but he was the very first one to point out that people were perceiving that there was a trade-off between global inequality and within country inequality at this point. So the first uh, driver I mentioned is there was, there was this perception that trade with China especially with China, was unfair. And in that context, we, he we heard many complaints that some large developing countries, again, people had China in mind, abused the special and differential status. Um, market access was denied to many companies in the West. Uh, there were subsidies, state-owned enterprises. There were concerns about intellectual property rights, forced technology transfer. Um, and at the same time, there was a rise of behind of the border restrictions. The, these are all valid concerns, and these concerns have been present for many years prior to 2018. Then the inequality trade-off, when it comes to global inequality, there is substantial evidence by now that global inequality has been reduced dramatically uh, post-World War II. There are several books that have made this point, including Deaton's book, The Great Escape, the World Bank, the World Development Report in 2006 made this point at a time when no one cared about inequality, Franco Milanovic, I already mentioned. Um, and I would argue that globalization, and in particular the integration of China and uh, many countries in East Asia into the world trade system played a very important role in this process. So the best way to see that is by uh, looking at the so-called elephant curve. So the elephant curve comes from, again, from a paper by Milanovic and Lackner, and then the, the elephant drawing was added by Caroline Freund. And this is a growth incidence curve. So what the curve shows you is what the income growth rate is, that's the vertical axis, plotted again various percentiles of the global income distribution. And one thing you can see from this graph is if you look at the, uh, all the way to the right, that's the top 1%, the top 1% grew very fast. Right? However, so the 80th and 90th percentile did not grow very fast, but we have very fast growth in the middle, so around the 50th or 60th percentile and also the lower percentiles. And that's where the low-income countries are. These are the countries that grew very fast. Now, to be fair to the literature, this elephant curve has been recently updated by a set of researchers who are known to most economists um, uh, because they have worked with tax data. So they include uh, Piketty and Zuckman. And uh, they plotted exactly the same elephant curve, but instead of using survey data, as the, the creators of the previous elephant curve had done, they based this, um, this uh, curve on tax records. Tax records have the advantage that you can capture the top incomes. The top incomes often don't show up in survey responses, either because people don't reply, very rich people don't reply, or because their incomes are top-coded. So this is the big advantage of using tax data. And so the big difference you see here is that, according to this curve, the top 1% has grown very fast. This is where most of the growth was. Now, the scale is also different. If you look carefully, you see that on the vertical axis, it goes up to 250%. So we have very fast growth uh, for the top 1%, which is a point that 
uh, Saez and Piketty and Zuckerman have made repeatedly, but independent of what the top 1% did, another point that's interesting is that you see that the lower percentiles also did very well. So we also had fast growth among the very poor of the world, and these are again the low-income countries. However, what this graph also makes very clear is that the middle was squeezed, and that's where most uh, workers in the US and then in Western Europe were. So I think these two curves taken together illustrate quite convincingly the point, not, not necessarily that there is a trade-off, but, but that growth in the last few decades has benefited low-income countries. Uh, it has also benefited the very rich, but the middle has stagnated. Uh, what about within-country inequality? When we think about within-country inequality, there are two dimensions that are uh, of importance. You can think of people as being consumers, and you can think of people as being workers. So let me start with uh, the second aspect, people as workers. That brings us to the labor market effects of globalization. And there, there are various phenomena that have been documented extensively in the literature. Uh, for example, the increase in the skill premium in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the polarization in the labor market starting, starting in the late 90s, the decline in manufacturing employment, both in the US and the UK in the last 15 years. And one natural question is, what role did trade and globalization play in all this? Uh, what do we know so far? So what we do know is that, uh, first as a starter, for those of you who have taken international trade, the workhorse model of international trade, so the Hexer-Lean model, provides a very natural way to think about these issues because it links the skill premium to a country's factor endowments. That said, the consensus in the literature, after many years of research, has been that trade played only a secondary role in the increase of the skill premium during that time. And to the extent that it played a role, it was only in interaction with technology. So yes, in principle, based on first principles, based on theory, trade should have been important, but we failed to find any evidence that this was the case. This consensus shifted in the 2000s. Uh, the, there, uh, a series of papers um, documented that trade could potentially play an important role as a driver of inequality. Now, why is this? So two explanations come in mind. The first is that it all has to do with China, with the entry of China into the world trade system. And there are many people who have made this point. For example, the work of Otter, Dorn, and Hanson emphasizes the size of China in world trade markets and, and attributes most of the change to the so-called China shock. But I think a more important uh, explanation of why this, the focus shifted is that we've been looking at the wrong place. So we've been looking at the skill premium, when in fact all the action was uh, at a different dimension of inequality, spatial inequality. So once the focus of research shifted from the skill premium to the spatial inequality, people start finding very large effects of trade on differences in inequality across places. So uh, such evidence exists not only for the US, but for many countries. So uh, there is evidence from developing countries uh, by Topalova, Di Carneiro, and Kovac uh, for India and Brazil, respectively. So these are studies that have nothing to do with China. And nevertheless, they show that trade had uh, uh, resulted in an increase in spatial inequality. 
In the US, I already mentioned Otto Donald Hanson, who focused on the China shock. But there is also another paper by Choi and co-authors that focuses on NAFTA. And again, people had looked at NAFTA before repeatedly and had failed to find any large effects of NAFTA on the US labor markets. But once they started looking at counties, at the effects that NAFTA had on inequality across counties that had different exposure to import competition because of pre-existing industrial patterns, then they started finding large effects. Uh, in several uh, European countries, there is also evidence of this increase in special inequality. And again, all this evidence is reviewed in the Deaton Review in the chapter by Don and uh, Labelle. And uh, one actually interesting aspect of the evidence they present in this chapter is that these effects differ across countries. These effects were very pronounced in the US and in the UK and in Spain. Uh, however, not in countries like uh, Germany or Switzerland, why not? Partly because Germany and Switzerland also export to China. They are net exporters to China. So they actually benefited from uh, uh, trade with low-wage countries. And they also benefited not just in the aggregate. Everyone benefits in the aggregate, but also in terms of special effects. Uh, the, the best way to show you the special, I showed you the, the, the elephant curve as a demonstration of, of global inequality and uh, reduction and how growth contributed to the reduction in global poverty. If you want to see the increase in special inequality, I think the next two graphs are very telling. And these graphs come from a paper by Di Carneiro and Kovac that focuses on Brazil. And Brazil conducted a major trade liberalization in the early 90s. So that's the middle part between the two vertical lines in the graph. So what you can see in this graph is what happened to employment in the formal sector. So these are the good jobs that we actually see in the data. Um, between 1990 and uh, as late as uh, 2010. So they look at the long run effects of this trade liberalization episode. And what you see there, the graph before the vertical line in 1991, that uh, it works now. So that part here shows the pre-trend. So you can see there was no pre-trend. This is a liberalization period. And then after the liberalization, they trace what happens to employment. And you can see that employment starts going down. right? And most trade models would have predicted this. There is some, time, some readjustment following a trade reform. But most trade models would have predicted that as people move across space, uh, then eventually the economy returns back to the old level. This is not happening here. So the, the employment keeps going down, and eventually it stabilizes at a much lower level. So these effects are long run, they are long lived, and they are quite dramatic. What happens to earnings, to wages? Again, this is only in the formal sector. Here there was actually a pre-trend. So earnings were increasing in the formal sector. Then the liberalization happens, earnings start going down, and they keep, keep going down for many decades. So these are not just short-run effects. All these effects here are relative effects. So what they show is how earnings and employment across different regions within Brazil exposed to different degrees of import competition were affected. So all these graphs measure spatial inequality, not aggregate effects, not the aggregate effects of trade. And what they show actually in this paper, and this is a topic for another discussion, is eventually they level off. But the only reason they level off is because the informal sector in Brazil absorbs mm -hmm. the laid off workers. So if you look at this, it's a pretty bleak picture because it tells you that these special effects, these uh, uh, 
inequality effects are not uh, transitory, they are persistent, and the long run can be very long run. So in their work, it's up to two uh, decades. There has been a lot of work on, on special inequality, and what the work has shown is that these effects are not confined to labor markets. People have also found that, that these uh, special effects also apply to education, child labor, crime, uh, welfare payments, mental health, and so on. What I've talked about so far is how people are affected through the labor market channel as workers. Uh, one might counter what about people as consumers, because one of the, presumably one of the biggest benefits of trade and globalization is through lower prices and more variety, which benefits consumers. Uh, so most models tell us that this is a benefit, but it's a valid question to ask, what do the data tell us? So what do we see in the data? And here there are two questions of interest. So first, do prices respond to trade barriers? We would think yes, but do we see that in the data? And second, if that's the case, do these price changes, to the extent that you are interested in inequality, do they affect people in different parts of the income distribution differently? So do they have unequal effects? So let's take the first question first. What are the aggregate effects on prices? So there I have some work with various co-authors on India. And what we found focusing on the trade liberalization in India is that the trade liberalization indeed reduced prices and had many other positive effects. It increased quality, led to greater product variety. Uh, however, the prices did not decline by as much as the cost of firms. So what this means is that the profit margins of firms increased. Consumers still benefited, but not by as much as you would have predicted if the profit margins had not increased. This is one piece of evidence. More recently, from the US, uh, the trade war provides a very nice experiment for the purpose of studying the effects of tariffs on prices, because we can, we can plausibly argue that they were economically exogenous. So what we found with uh, other work with Coders, that's the Fagel et al. paper, is that actually in that case, the prices increased one for one with tariffs. You had complete pass-through of the tariff changes on prices. And again, surprisingly, this finding was corroborated by many other studies, by Amiti and Toll and Carvalho and Toll. This is one of the rare cases where all economists agree on something. And this is not an effect that you would have anticipated. In fact, I got into this literature when I started working on that. It was precisely because I wanted to show that the, given what we know about pass-through from, from past studies, one wouldn't have expected these tariffs to be completely passed through to US prices. And yet what we saw was complete pass-through. So the conclusion is that prices do respond to trade barriers. They did respond to tariffs. They may not respond completely, but they do respond. And that means that if we had a sustained period of trade liberalization in the past two decades, this must have contributed to lower prices. What about the question of whether, of whether these effects differ across consumers at different parts of the income distribution? There, the evidence is very mixed. And uh, I don't have time to go through all these papers in great detail. But let me, since we talk about China, let me mention a paper by Haravel and Sager in 2023, the latest version, where they document that the trade with China between the US and China resulted in very large price declines. That's a good thing, of course. And moreover, these price declines benefited disproportionately low-income consumers. Uh, that would imply that actually trade with China reduced inequality in the US. 
However, that said, Dorn and Lebel in the Deaton Review document that Brexit and also the China shock had price effects, but these effects were uniform across the income distribution. So their conclusion is that, yes, everyone benefited from the price declines, but it's not necessarily the case that the low-income consumers benefited more. So what this would imply is that the price declines did not reduce inequality. So in conclusion, the effects on the distributional effects of prices is very mixed. Price effects are present, but we are less confident as to whether these price effects benefit low-income consumers more than high-income consumers. At any rate, no matter how you uh, put it, the fact is that the price effects tend to be less salient than the wage effects or the employment effects. So even though the price effects may be there, it's harder for people to appreciate them. And this may have contributed to this sentiment that globalization is a source of evil and nothing good. On the other hand, you can contrast those with the special effects that I talked about, the effects across communities. These effects are salient, they are large, and they are persistent. So that's the phase one I talked about. And as I said, the consequences were Brexit and the US trade war. But despite this strong rhetoric and the uncertainty, there was little effect on actual trade. And in fact, surprisingly, the US-China trade war increased trade in those products that were most affected by tariffs. So let me show you two graphs that show that clearly. So this graph shows you on the uh, horizontal axis is the change in the tariff between the US and China for various products. And on the vertical axis, you see the change in exports by bystander countries. So these are countries other than US and China. So countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, other European countries, Mexico, and so on. <clears throat> so what do you see? As tariff increases, countries export more to the US. This is what you would expect. The US is imposing tariffs on China. China is out of the picture, so other countries, Mexico, India, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, take the place of China. This is exactly what you would expect. However, what you wouldn't expect is that these countries start exporting also more to the rest of the world. So not only do they export more to the US, they also export more to other countries. Uh, why this is happening, this is a very interesting question, and I don't have time to talk about this here. But the main point here is that as a result of, of, of these tariff increases between the US and China, we did not see a dampening of trade. If anything, we saw more trade. Um, another way to see that is if you actually plot what, how, by how much exports of various countries benefited from these tariff increases, you end up with a rather surprising finding that many countries ended up being net winners in the sense of exports. This is not a welfare statement. It's just a statement about exports. Uh, with some countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, Mexico capturing more of the gains. But there were many countries that actually increased their trade. So my point here is that the trade war, despite this very toxic rhetoric that we experienced during that time, did not have any real consequences. Of course, you can think of the trade war as being a stepping stone. It laid the groundwork for what was going to come later. Then we come to phase two. And in phase two, that these are the COVID years between 2020 and 2002, there is a rather novel argument against trade, the fragility of global supply chains. So the main argument can be summarized as follows. 
A chain is as strong as the weakest link. If one link breaks because one country is hit by COVID and has to lock down, then the entire chain is paralyzed. Now, of course, this is not a completely new argument. It was made many times before, and especially after the Japanese earthquake, the great earthquake in 2011. But it gained new significance during COVID. And, and during that time, there, there is a new demand for resilience that uh, emerges. My point is going to be that the arguments are not supported by the evidence. Uh, so why not? So as a starting point, one needs to be clear what we mean by resilience. And there, there are many conceptual issues. I think a useful starting point is a, a definition that Marcus Brunemeyer provided in his book, The Resilient Society. And he defined resilience as a case where an object bends but doesn't break. So um, in his book, he contrasts resilience to robustness. And he gives two examples of the reed and the oak. The oak is robust. It's very strong. It can withstand very strong winds. But if the wind is strong enough, eventually the oak may break. On the other hand, the reed is not robust. It sways with the wind. And even a light breeze will make it go back and forth. However, the reed, because it's resilient, it may actually be able to withstand a very strong shock. And Marcus makes the point that as a society, we want to be a reed. We don't want to be an oak. I believe that most of us would agree with this statement. Now, this is a very appealing starting point, I think. But the question is, how do you oper operationalize it for economics? So, so what is the benchmark and what is the desired level of resilience? And these are conceptual issues for which we don't have good answers yet. Uh, but some things we need to think about are when we talk about resilience, it has to be with reference to specific shocks. Are we talking about a supply shock, a demand shock, or both? Are we talking about a sector-specific shock, a country-specific shock, or both? Are we talking about idiosyncratic shocks or systemic shocks? And I can go on. Know that the COVID-19 shock was both a supply and demand shock. It was a global shock even though it was not synchronized across countries, because different countries were hit at different times. And it was arguably the largest shock that the, the global economy experienced after World War II. Um, judged by the bend but not break criterion that Marcus provided, I would argue that the world economy proved incredibly resilient during 2020 to 2022. And international trade contributed to this resilience. I'm not saying that the economy was robust, we experienced bottlenecks, we experienced shortages, but I think the economy did prove resilience. Why? Number one, the trade volumes declined in 2020. They rebounded in 2021. So here is a graph from the IMF, from the, the World Economic Outlook, that shows that very clearly. If you look at the gray line at the top, this was the projection of what would happen to trade prior to the pandemic. Once the pandemic hits, this is the IMF forecast, the red line. They predict that in 2020, trade will tank. And after that, it will grow very slowly. So the black line shows what actually happened. So yes, trade declined. And after that, it went up very rapidly. So in terms of trade, actually, the economy did prove very resilient. Um, 
there is some new evidence, I have a new paper coming out, that if you look at firm-to-firm -firm relationships between importers and exporters, these were actually not disrupted during that time. The volumes declined, so firms imported less, but they kept their relationships intact. Uh, finally, because the COVID waves were not synchronized across countries, uh, the imports of PPP uh, equipment, it actually alleviated domestic bottlenecks. And here is an, a graph that makes that, I think, quite clear. You see what happened between 2018 and 2021 in terms of imports. Uh, they are normalized to start at 1 in 2018. So for all goods, you see that imports decline in 2020 and then they go up afterwards. The blue line shows what happened to face masks. So we all remember how we experienced shortages in face masks. And at that time, there was a period of two weeks where we read in the news every day how this showed the ultimate failure of global supply chains. But the truth is that these two weeks were, of course, critical. But after these two weeks, China was pretty much out of the woods because by March 2020, they had contained the pandemic. And then they started exporting face masks. And it turns out that China is the biggest exporter of face masks. So in fact, this huge increase you see in face masks, it all comes from China during that time. So this is a time where actually the global supply chains, not only did they not contribute to the supply chain shortages, they actually made them better. You can see that for many other goods, so electric car batteries, semiconductor chips, it's another case where the exports uh, boomed after the initial decline in the pandemic. Uh, this is micro evidence, but there is a lot more evidence regarding the, the resilience of the economy that we can attribute to trade specifically. So there is a paper by Kana and all that focuses on India. And one interesting finding is they show that, in contrast to what I showed you about the US, firm-to-firm -firm relationships in India were disrupted during that time. However, they show that this disruption these disruptions were less severe for complex products. So for products where it was really important to have long-term relationships between suppliers, because the products were very sophisticated, the private sector had already taken the right steps. Stumpner has a paper in 2022 where he argues that the regional lockdowns in China did not affect global trend with the exception of the last one. There is a paper by Bonadio and Toll in 2021 where they estimate they use a quantitative model to quantify the effects of COVID, they do find that there was a very sharp decline in GDP across 64 countries due to COVID, not surprisingly, but you can only attribute a very small fraction of this decline to uh, foreign shocks. And they also show that this contraction would have been much worse if we didn't have trade. Why is that the case? Well, intuitively, COVID-19, this particular shock, did not only affect global supply chains, it, only, it also affected domestic supply chain. It also affected domestic inputs. So actually, if you had cut off the economy from global suppliers, the shortages due to domestic supply bottlenecks would have been much worse. And that comes back to this question of what, of what is the nature of the shock. It's true that if the, the shock originates in one particular country and you rely on your, for your imports, you rely on this country very heavily, you're going to be negatively affected. But if you are diversified, then trade actually can be a source of resilience. Um, there is, uh, 
overall, the evidence is consistent with a point that was made by Caselli and Toll in a slightly different context in the 2020. And in that paper, they asked the question, does trade make an economy more or less, I'm going to use the terminology resilient to shocks, but actually the way they put it is, are they, does it make the economy more or less vulnerable to volatility? And they point out that most people's intuition is that trade exposes an economy to more volatility. Why is that? Because trade implies sectoral specialization. And if you are specialized in a particular sector and the sector gets hit with a shock, then you are going to be negatively affected. On the other hand, if the shock is country specific, then because trade tends to diversify you across different countries, it's going to expose you to less volatility. So ultimately, the question comes down to, do we have more country-specific shocks, or do we see more sector-specific shocks in the data? And their answer is that in the last few decades, country-specific shocks dominate the data. And as a result, trade has made economies much more resilient. So this comes back to my earlier point that we cannot talk about resilient, resilience without having reference, without reference to particular shocks. And depending on the nature of the shock, trade can make a country more or less resilient to, to, a, to, to a specific shocks. But the evidence to date suggests that so far in the last few decades, trade has actually made countries more resilient, not less resilient. What are the consequences of all this sentiment? As I said earlier, they, they didn't have any particular consequences. The trade rebounded. And I think it's partly due to the fact that actually, despite this rhetoric, there was no real substance to the claims that trade had, had reduced the resilience of the economy. My own view is that if it had not been for the invasion of Ukraine, we may have gone back to normal. However, um, all these arguments about global supply chain resilience fed protectionism. It was a further stepping stone. And it contributed to this gradual change in attitudes. Um, this change was reflected in the poll of the both economists. Uh, so little by little, trade is, views, is viewed as a source of uh, trouble, as a liability, rather than a source of resilience. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Phase three, the drivers, I think historians are going to debate for many years to come why we went down this path. Uh, maybe it's the, the, the lingering dissatisfaction with the way we have, we have failed to address the unequal effects of globalization that have brought us to this point. So I, 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 don't, I don't have the answer of what the true drivers of, this, of the latest developments are, but the catalyst, I think, was the invasion of Ukraine. And why is that? Because the invasion exposed uh, the fragility of trade to a different type of risk, which is a real risk, namely geopolitical risk. And it, it made clear what the risk of excessive international specialization is. So in the case of Ukraine, the high reliance of Europe on energy from a single country, Russia. So by analogy, the US is equally concerned that uh, it may face a similar situation if, let's say, there was an 
China invaded Taiwan, and all of a sudden, the US were cut off from the semiconductor industry. So all of a sudden, national security becomes the primary concern, and now it's, a, it's, it's for real. So it's not just a, a pretense as with the Trump tariffs when national security was invoked in order to justify aluminum and steel tariffs. Now, nationals, there are new arguments in favor of uh, trade restrictions that stem from national security. And there is also another term that enters our daily vocabulary, namely the term dual goods. And dual goods are goods that have both civilian and military use. The claim is that the number of such goods is steadily increasing. They are becoming very important for China. And therefore, it was very important to uh, impose export restrictions in the semiconductor industry in China. I think the valid concern all these arguments raise is how important, uh, how concentrated are markets for imports. So ultimately, what these arguments highlight is the need for diversification. And I would argue that the diversification is important not only vis-a-vis -vis international suppliers, but also vis-a-vis -vis domestic suppliers. So if you, are, if you are sourcing your inputs from a single domestic supplier who's a monopoly, you are also vulnerable. So it's a matter of competition and it's a matter of diversification. So it's a natural question to ask how diversified is really international trade? So I've looked at this question for the US and the answer is overall US trade is quite diversified. However, there are exceptions. And in some critical goods, you see very high concentration. What are these goods? So some of these goods are medical goods. Face masks are, I already mentioned. So in the case of face masks, 75% come from a single country, China. There is also an infant formula and penicillin. So we looked at these goods because they featured very prominently in the press. There is also very high concentration. And then in some other strategic goods, for example, electric car batteries or semiconductors, you also crude oil, you also see very high concentration. However, there are various caveats to the extent that you want to use a graph like this one to justify export restrictions or a retreat from globalization, you should keep in mind some caveats. And the first caveat is that um, concentration may be problematic, and you may want uh, to decouple from a particular country. However, this may expose you to a different kind of risks. So take the case of face masks. China has an import share of, of approximately 80% for face masks, but China ultimately faced the day during COVID-19. So suppose we decouple from China, it may increase resilience to geopolitical risk, but it won't increase reliance to a health shock. Uh, many of the import sources that I showed you before, let's say for infant formula, they're actually from friendly countries, to use the, the term that people use these days. So for example, the imports of infant formula come primarily from Ireland and Mexico. The imports for, of crude oil come primarily from Canada and Mexico. And one interesting aspect of these patterns, if you ask yourself, so why is infant formula coming primarily from Ireland and Mexico? This is also the result of trade restrictions. So with infant formula, there are so many safety precautions and so many trade restrictions that ultimately only a very small subset of countries are allowed to export to the US. So trade restrictions have actually contributed to this concentration we see in imports. So uh, there is clearly concentration, but the concentration is not, does not apply only to non-friendly countries like China. It 
applies also to friendly countries. And finally, when it comes to dual goods, one problem is that ultimately every good can be a dual good. You can talk about clothing or you can talk about food and uh, soldiers also use clothes and they eat and if they eat well, maybe they're going to be stronger. So you can apply this argument if we go down this path, every good is ultimately a dual good. Further issues, friendliness is not a concept that's constant over time. So. Uh, we looked at data with Tristan Reed. We looked at data from a government survey to see what countries are perceived as friendly for the United States. You wouldn't be surprised to hear that China is considered unfriendly, but there are also countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia that are considered non-friendly. And one can uh, understand why probably people have the war in Vietnam in mind or the different regimes. Uh, there is a very strong culturally pro-European bias in the survey responses. So if you ask the public, they consider trade with Europe as uh, trade with friendly countries, and that's beneficial <laughs> to the country, but not trade with other countries, especially not trade with developing countries. Uh, th th this, is, uh, this is risky, because among other things, uh, it implies that one day we may have trade exclusively with high-income countries, completely excluding developing countries. Uh, other issues, what, what use various goods have, what a dual good is, what the national security concern is. Apart from the fact that these concepts are not well defined, uh, even if we manage to define them somehow, these are not issues, these are, these are not uh, concepts or problems that can be easily verified by someone who doesn't work for the government. And, and as economists, we have been trained trained for many years to judge policies based on criteria such as welfare, efficiency, even equality or inequality or distribution. And we do that based on models, and the models have their own problems. We need to make assumptions. However, and we debate these assumptions, and we agree and we disagree, but at least the analysis is transparent, and we are very clear what we assume, what the assumptions are, what the problems are, what the caveats are, and so on. But once we go down the path of invoking concepts such as resilience that's not well-defined or not well-benchmarked, or national security that's not benchmarked, but even not verifiable by, by the average person or the average economist, then I think we should become, as, not just as academics, but as independent thinkers, we should be a little uncomfortable with that. Because we just have to trust the, the word for the government without being able to examine these claims ourselves. Um, Finally, let me speculate, um, I assume I'm almost out of time, let me speculate a little bit on, on, on consequences of these latest developments. Um, as I noted at the beginning, it's too early to, to see changes in the data. Uh, we have seen in the last year profound changes in the US trade policy. And here I'm not talking about the sanctions against Russia, which can be justified. We are based on what's happening in Ukraine but I'm talking about the national security strategy, uh, about the explicit statement by the US trade representative that this is the beginning of a new era, about the restrictions vis-a-vis -vis China in semiconductors. Uh, meanwhile, the tariffs, the Trump tariffs are still in place, the World Trade Organization is paralyzed. And I think overall, the person who put it best in my view is Edward Luce from the Financial Times, Back in November, he said a superpower declared war on a great power. 
He has the US in mind declaring war on China, and nobody noticed. And I think we talk about this very little, but effectively, we are at the beginning of a major economic war. What are the long-term consequences of this? Again, these are highly speculative. But I would argue that wars, hot or cold, do not contribute to prosperity. And there I, will, uh, I understand that even Tim <laughs> and with his work with Person have argued that there are some good things that may come from wars in the long run. I hope I don't misquote you, Tim, that they may contribute to higher state capacity. Others have pointed out that wars may lead to technological innovation. But there are actually different ways to accomplish that if we want to rally the troops around the common cause, we can find more worthy causes. You can find climate change or disease or cancer. It doesn't have to be an external war. Um, I think likely consequences are we could see a slowdown of global growth uh, and a slowdown also of global poverty reduction. Most models of long-run growth emphasize the, the importance of market size for innovation. Uh, similarly, in a paper I have with Tristan, we emphasize the role of market size in strategies to reduce poverty reduction, especially when the countries are small. For a large country like India, it may not matter. They have a large enough domestic market size that they may need trade less than other countries. But once you come to the small countries, trade with lucrative economies is essential for them. We may in the future see inflationary pr pressures. Less international competition means there is more room for price increases. Uh, however, you know, on the bright side, it's also possible that all this acts as an impetus for technological innovation, especially when it comes to green energy. And lastly, are we going to, can we hope for more resilience, given that resilience, especially to geopolitical risks, has been a motivating factor? Uh, for the reasons I mentioned, I am not so sure. Perhaps we'll see more resilience to geopolitical risk, but not to other risks. So to conclude, uh, I think it's fair to say that globalization survived the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, the Trump tariffs, the US-China trade war, COVID-19. We had a slowdown of the trend, but not reversal. But I do think that now we are at the, at the dawn of a new era, and the catalyst has been the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we are in uncharted territory here. Uh, nothing like that has happened in the last two or three decades. So we need to go back to history to see if we find any parallels. History suggests that one needs to be quite careful. We had, there are many parallels between what we're experiencing right now and the pre-belligerence period before World War II. Uh, I will use the, the famous quote by Mark Twain that everyone uses these days, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often <clears throat> rhymes. And we can also apply this quote to what we're experiencing right now. So uh, I am afraid I don't, I have a rather pessimistic view of the future. If we go down this path, the hope is that we are not going to go down this path. But ultimately, you know, the biggest risk, I think, is not so much on the economic side, but on the political side and the prospect that this Cold War eventually becomes a Cold War. So I will stop here and thank you very much. Right. Great, thank you, Penny. Uh, I mean, you covered so much ground, it's sobering. 
I'm going to open it up, but maybe I, I, I think I want to just push you a little bit on the last part of the presentation on the geopolitics side of it. And if you could maybe speculate a little bit on what you think that means, let's say, externally for globalization. I mean, what should we expect? Should we expect, it sounds like what you're saying is some kind of segmentation or fragmentation of globalization. Is it going to take externally like a regional form where we should expect regional blocks to form? Maybe the North American block uh, deepening, greater integration there. But also, um, it would be interesting, the first part of your lecture is about kind of the the spatial consequences of globalization and how they eroded basically support for um, globalism. And I suppose the, the question is, what's the consequences of geopolitical rivalry internally? If we just look at the United States, I mean, does it address that problem in any way? Or do we end up with a situation where we've got geopolitics going and we've still got spatial inequality on steroids going? which sounds like a pretty bad combination to have both of those going at the same time. That, that's an excellent question. I do not think that these geopolitical concerns are going to, or the measures that we are taking to, to address geopolitics are going to address spatial inequality. Mm -hmm. So one could possibly, I, ca I can imagine that people see this presentation and they think phase one seems completely disjoint from phase two and phase three, they seem, in each phase, people were concerned about completely different things. Uh, but if you remember, when I talked about phase three, I put these three question marks, because at some point we need to ask ourselves, and I keep asking myself, but in 2015, 2016, the world economy was in a pretty good place. Mm -hmm. It was not perfect, there were many problems, but relatively speaking, we were not in the midst of a financial crisis or a global meltdown or war. Why did we decide to take this apart and go down this path where now all of a sudden we are back, being a, we are back to the point where we are afraid of a nuclear conflict? And that's where I think that perhaps these issues of spatial inequality laid the groundwork for what came next. It prepared the public for this uh, it created this anti-globalization sentiment that did not exist earlier on. So it could be ultimately, it could be that ultimately this is the, the driving force behind all this. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding the, the latest policies, uh, the U.S. is taking some steps to address special inequality. Many provisions of the IRA or the CHIPS Act are targeted towards addressing inequality. And I think reasonable people may agree or disagree of whether this is the right approach or not. There is a very long debate about industrial policy, and I have to admit, as an economist, I don't object to industrial policy on principle. There are industrial policies that have worked and industrial policies that have not worked. So that part I have not an issue with. However, the parts that are explicitly targeted towards stopping China, there I think we have to ask ourselves, how do these policies contribute to welfare in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. So what's the link there? How are we going to address special inequality by stopping China? And these days, someone cannot help but sometimes having the feeling that stopping China or slowing down China has become an end in itself. 
So policymakers measure themselves by how successful they can be in containing China. But ultimately, we need to ask ourselves the question, how does this relate to the real challenges we face? And is this going to address any of the real issues? And, and I don't see it. Maybe someone else does, but I don't see how this is how this link can be made. Okay, that's great. We're going to open it up. Um, hands, put your hands up. I'm going to take the woman over right over there with the scarf. Hi, I'm uh, Maria, student at uh, LSE. I was wondering where you see the role of the predicted mass demographic decline to play in, in the role of um, deglobalization. So meaning the massive predicted retirement that is supposedly to happen in 2020s and 30s, and also just the decline in China overall. Hold that thought. Uh, the gentleman right behind there, yeah, in the black outfit. Uh, I'm Ramin from UCL Economics. I was curious uh, to go back to your point about industrial policy in the US. Do you, don't you think that could be a possible a positive side effect of all these stories, the return of industrial policy? If it's done properly, it could actually help innovation. Let me take one question online. So we've had nearly uh, 250 people taking part online at this event uh, from countries including South Korea, Greece, India, Peru, Israel, the US, Canada, and Germany. So one question comes from Fernando Herrero. What about the non-aligned countries of the so-called global south in between US and China? How do you see that big unit if it is unified and makes sense to use the term? Thank you. The bystanders. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. Yeah. Let me start with the last question. <laughs> so, so these are, as Peter said, these are the, the so-called bystander countries. And as I said earlier, many of these countries initially saw an opportunity from benefiting from the US-China conflict. Um, right now, many countries have the attitude, please do not make us choose between the US and China. I think most of these countries do not want to be caught in the middle of another Cold War. Um, but it is true that a few years ago they saw a great opportunity for themselves, and we see that in the data we actually see that they, they did benefit. Uh, regarding industrial policy, I, I agree. I think industrial policy, when properly implemented, and that's, that's a big when, <laughs> that's a big if, it can contribute to addressing all these challenges, all these inequalities, but industrial policy doesn't necessarily mean that we uh, declare the trade war to another country. Now, of course, some would point out that many of the policies, that uh, many of the provisions in the, in the CHIPS Act or in IRA are not consistent with multilateral principles. Um, the use of subsidies is not something, it's something that, our, that the US allies, especially the Europeans, have been very upset about. And at the same time, I think it's, it's perhaps time to rethink some of these subsidies and go case by case. So in some sectors, uh, subsidies may breed inefficiency and all the usual arguments against subsidies may apply. But in other sectors, especially when it comes to new technologies supporting a green energy transition, subsidies might be welcome. And if the Europeans want to subsidize too, so be it then it would be a good, a good race. You know, it could be a race to the top. I don't see a problem with that. Now, I, the biggest, I think, argument against <clears throat> industrial policy, and that, that's a valid argument, has been that <clears throat> the government needs to know too much to do it properly. And so 
the reason we often trust markets or we leave things to the markets is not necessarily because we think that there are no market failures. It's because we think that you can trust the anonymous markets, the multiple agents that, that operate in these markets more than you would trust a single authority that needs to know exactly how the game is played. I think this is, to me, that's the perhaps more, most valid argument against industrial subsidies. But as I said before, I'm not opposed to them on principle. Um, there was a question about the demographic transition. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, in my view, it's a first order issue. And it's indirectly linked to what I talked about. So very often when I talk about these issues, about the issues of global inequality and global poverty, a question I get from honest members of an audience in advanced countries is, why should we care? about these countries. So we live in the West, climate change, inequality is more important in our economies than poverty, and there are very few people who are poor, and all these people are in Africa. Why is this a very important issue? I would argue that the reason this is an important issue is because the demographics are changing. And the, the advanced economies, we are facing a demographic crisis with an aging population. Now, we may say we don't need people, because we are going to substitute people by machines and robots. And this is great, because people are not going to consume. And this might be also a way to address labor shortages and also climate change. There is one problem with this argument, that in the poor part of the world that we tend to ignore, they have an opposite demographic problem. Uh, countries in Africa are growing very fast. And extreme poverty still exists there. And we are not in the 15th century when people in Niger or in Somalia did not know what's happening in the rest of the world. As we get more and more people in Africa who are still extremely poor, they will start pushing north. Europe has already experienced this crisis. The US is experiencing it to a certain extent in the southern border with Mexico. So this notion that in advanced economies we, had, we can completely insulate ourselves care just about our problems, which are climate change and inequality, and not worry about the rest of the world, where some people are still extremely poor. I don't think this is sustainable in the long run. So eventually, we'll face the consequences of people trying to push to the north and, uh, and making a claim to the prosperity that the rest of us are enjoying. So if you put it in this context, I do think that trade and globalization did play a very important role in the past in enabling the small countries, these faraway countries, to get integrated in the world trading system and rise. If we transition to a world that's very fragmented, that, that excludes these countries from trade, and that's a real prospect, because if we transition to a world where we only trade with countries that are friends, countries that have similar labor standards, countries that have similar environmental standards, so we may feel great about ourselves, but we've condemned a large part of the world to perpetual poverty. And apart from the fact that we may not want that for humanitarian reasons, eventually we'll pay the price of that. I don't think it's sustainable. There was a question over here. Yeah, um, I'm Cabby. I'm a student here at LSE doing a master's degree. Um, I wanted to ask you, at the start of your presentation, you talked a bit about income and how um, the disproportionately the 90th percentile, I believe, um, has accumulated a lot more wealth in the past couple decades relative to everyone else. Um, it made me think about last year when there was a big push by the Treasury Department, I believe, and Janet Yellen to introduce a global minimum tax. 
and i believe most of the g twenty was on board i just haven't heard anything about that in a while i was wondering what your opinion on that idea was and if you've seen any movement in that direction let's take the gentleman over here in a blue sweater hi my name is Rajman Sali I am an alumnus of LSE and the professor of statistics at Imperial College I'd like to ask you about uh, allowing countries like China and Saudi Arabia to keep the balances in USA for example rather than taking sending them back home and uh, improving the lives of their people and as a result what's happened is that uh, those Bible and they've demanded a premium for their money and that has led to the sort of policies resulting in uh, devastation of industrial heartlands. Would you like to comment on that? Now, this is a point of view coming from Yale Richard, right here in the gray sweater. Thank you for your talk. My name is Richard. I'm a member of the public. Uh, at the start, you, you talked very briefly about capital flows, but the whole presentation was framed in the context of trade. If we ask the question or you think about it or what research or data you have in terms of global capital flows within financial markets and other form of do we get the same answer or is it a very different uh, diagnosis? Well, I can, I can start with the last one because that's the easiest. Uh, actually, capital flows would support the notion that globalization is, is still going on uh, more than ever. Capital flows are still... Uh, on the rise. And uh, perhaps one fact that's not very well known, people have been, despite all these concerns about China, capital inflows, FDI into China during the past two, two years grew very, very fast. So if anything, capital flows will make this, this, this statement I made at the beginning, that we don't see it in the data, it will make it even stronger. Uh, regarding the global minimum tax, so, so, so actually what I showed in the picture was not the, the top uh, the top 10%, it was really the top 0.1% that benefited, which is consistent you know, with, with this notion that it's the, the top companies that did best. So the global minimum tax, I think that the main criticism was that it's too low, that it's uniform across countries and you need global cooperation, and this is important, but at the same time it was uh, set at too low a level. Um, so, so I think the global minimum tax is important based on f fairness considerations and also to increase state capacity in many countries. And finally, to avoid the prisoner's dilemma between countries. Uh, that all is true, but I don't think it would address the fundamental uh, problems with inequality that we're experiencing. It is an example of some fruitful cooperation across countries and, and how far one can go if there is cooperation. I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. I apologize. Well, I want to get a few more questions in. Chris, why don't we go online for a second? So this question comes from Animesh Goshal, who's an LSE alumni. The Trump tariffs raised the average US tariff rate by the highest percentage in many years. What do you see about Biden's unwillingness to reduce them? Thank you. We've got a couple more questions. How about the gentleman with the baseball cap on? Uh, hi, I'm Amu Chuan. I'm a member of the public. Uh, used to study at LSE. So uh, my question is, how has the government support, both in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy during the pandemic, contributed to the resilience you mentioned earlier in the conversation? Thanks. Uh, right down here in the green. 
Uh, hi, I'm Ishan. I'm a LSE student of economics here. Um, my question is, so industrial policy has been via the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reducing Act in the US, but this has been shown to be quite expensive in trillions of dollars. Do you think there is a cheaper way to try and help to try and help reduce spatial inequality whilst also being framed at tackling China's rise in the US? Let me try to remember them all. So, so regarding the tariffs, I think there is wide agreement that the tariffs are totally unproductive. Um, and why did the current administration keep them in place? I think it's because everyone right now feels the pressure mm. to show that they are tough vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And that's one of the problems that we are locked in this mindset where policymakers are measured by how hawkish they are against China rather than by what, how successful their policies were in addressing uh, the real challenges. So I cannot see any other reason of why we keep them uh, in place. Uh, regarding the resilience, that's a very good question. I mean, when it comes to the, the growth of the economies in terms of GDP post-COVID, it, there is no question that the fiscal and monetary measures that were taken during the pandemic were a decisive factor. If, if countries had not intervened as aggressively as they did, we might be in a very different place. So this clearly contributed to resilience. But when it comes to trade specifically, or to the alleviation of bottlenecks, that's where I think trade did play an important role. And more generally, I would say, if you think about what happened during COVID-19, two of the current villains in the public debate, technology and trade, they saved the day. I mean, we have to admit that, we have to acknowledge that. Imagine where we would be during the pandemic, lockdown, <laughs> alone at home, if we didn't have access to technology, if we were not able to work remotely, what this would have done to the productivity of the economy, and where our mental health would be if we didn't have access to entertainment. So uh, we have to credit both trade and technology for the fact that we managed to survive these three years, um, and, and not just blame them for everything negative that happened during that time. Um, and there was another question. I... Uh, the question right here about the uh, CHIPS Act and dealing with spatial inequality. Right. right. So these are indeed very expensive. Um, I don't have the, the solution of how would, I would do it cheaper if, if I did. You know, I would deserve the Nobel Prize if anyone had it. <laughs> it's easy to, to, to make the point. It's hard to come with concrete solutions. But let me make the, the following point that I think having these assertive policies that may have uh, many benefits, that may have many advantages, at the same time, when you engage in a strong protectionist and anti-globalization talk, this can increase the cost of these measures. That I believe very strongly. And I often point out, it, it's very often hard to show precisely in econometric studies how the globalization, how the hyper-globalization of the 90s and the 2000s kept prices in check. But one thing that I think we can establish a correlation that's highly suggestive, during the past two decades, we had very aggressive monetary policy in the United States. We had quantitative easing. We had very high debt. And despite all this, we had no inflation in this country, and the wages did not increase. And we lament that fact. There is, a, there is a reason wages did not increase, and it's a bad reason. It's because workers did not have any bargaining power. Why didn't they have 
bargaining power because their jobs could be taken away by someone in a low-wage country through outsourcing or by a machine or by a robot. This is the negative side of technology and trade, and we have to acknowledge these effects. But the flip side of all this is that we kept inflation in check, and that benefited consumers. Now, we enter an era where we, I think, uh, the administration, the current administration is trying, is, is well-meaning, is trying to really address the problems of the past, these inequalities that I talked about, through a, a set of policies that are not uh, clearly going to lead to success, but at least seem promising. But if you, at the same time, you cut out China, you cut out other countries that may be low-cost suppliers because they are considered non-friendly, you impose strict labor standards on environmental standards that, again, may be well-meaning, but ultimately, all these things will have two effects. First, they will exclude low-wage developing countries from participating to trade. And second, from our point of view, they're going to raise the cost of procuring goods and services in advanced countries. And so all these policies are going to become much more expensive. So I, I would say that one small step that the, the administration could take in order to make these policies a little cheaper is to, again, embrace the good side of globalism rather than fighting it. That seems exactly the right place to end it. We've reached the bewitching hour. Um, Penny, I want to thank you for just a terrific presentation, and the discussion was wonderful. It's great to have you here at the LSE. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.